0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful Kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: This is a reading from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, and in this series, verses, very short verses, Paul lines up a series of things that we should always be doing. And he's going to equate this with the work of the Spirit. That is the Christian is to be characterized by these things, to be continually doing these things. So look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-19. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. And so I presume we are to equate rejoicing always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances. This is fulfilling God's will for us. And this is then to not quench the Spirit. This is the way to let the Spirit flow in our life. To allow the life-giving effect of the Holy Spirit to be at work in us. And so our characteristic emotion is to be joy. Our characteristic frame of mind is to be in prayer. The characteristic attitude is gratitude, thanksgiving. And each of these works God's will into our will. And each of these involves the life-giving work of the Spirit. And so the word quench, you know, the Spirit here is on the order of a flame. You don't want to put the flame out. You want to allow it to burn. And of course the idea is that it's not consuming oxygen... But it's producing life within us, through these things. So if the flame is not quenched, if it's not suppressed, if it's not restrained, you know, all the different synonyms that we might use for quench, if it's not doused, it lights up the various parts, the various seats of the human personality, the mind, the will, The emotions, the character, so that we're transformed. These series of exhortations, then, they're really regarding a continual state of mind that they fold into one singular command don't quench the spirit. And the way to let the spirit flow is through these commands. Again, rejoice, pray, give thanks. And so there is an engendering reality of life in the Spirit. And it shows itself as we're caught up in this dynamic of life flowing through the individual, receiving. You know, that's the image is we're receiving something from God and we're grateful for it. We're acknowledging this life that we're receiving. And so in both Romans and Thessalonians, the shape of this reception, it's in prayer, but it's a reversal of the way that we normally think of prayer. You know, I think we often picture prayer, well, it's our beseeching God, and maybe we picture God as a kind of distant person, and we're crying out, and maybe he hears us, maybe he doesn't hear us. But in both this verse and in Romans 8, 26 to 27, prayer is an activity that God is doing that we are caught up in. It's initiated by God. Look at verse 26 to 27 in Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. We may not be able to articulate this. We can't say it. It's too heavy for us. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The praying is taken up by the Spirit. And look at what happens. He searches. He who searches the hearts, he, I think, is the Father. He searches the hearts through the mind of the Spirit. That is, our mind is there with the mind of the Holy Spirit and He intercedes for us. Here is a participation in the Trinity. And so we often picture prayer as an articulation, you know, originating in our own minds. We don't know how to pray though. And Paul here pictures prayer though as a dynamic exchange in which actually the persons of God intermingle in who we are. They converge and bring about the incorporation of the believer. It's after this that he says we cry out on this basis, Abba, Father. The result of this prayer is our feeling of connectedness to God. Maybe to ourselves, maybe to other people. But we're connected in the life of God. So prayer is not so much our activity. It's not so much our articulation. But it's our being open to God and being caught up in the work of God that God is doing in us. And so in Thessalonians, prayer for Paul is a constant. He says this actually in several places. To be continually in prayer. And so it's not that we're continually articulating something, but I think it's a constant openness Maybe a kind of practicing of the presence of God, giving rise to this characteristic emotion, calling for a continual flow of gratitude. So maybe we could just say prayer is practicing the presence of God. It is receptivity and openness, recognition of God in our lives. And through this openness of praying arises, I think, a new emotional life. You know, sometimes I think we imagine our emotions as something that just happens to us. But Paul commands, you know, you have to have a particular kind of emotion. He says this in Philippians, rejoice. And I say it again, rejoice, always. And he's saying the same thing here in Thessalonians that we, in fact, are in control of our emotional life. And there is a new character, a new characteristic, that, you know, attitude, a characteristic, uh, one of giving thanks, one of gratitude. I think this shapes who we are. If we're thinking back last week of our comparison between Romans 7 and 8, the Romans 7 kind of person Is maybe this is an understated sort of way, but they're missing out on prayer, but you know, with that they're missing out on communion, communication, fellowship, and love, because that's all the things that Paul is including in the prayer life. It is this openness to life. The opposite is closeness, alienation, and actually death. Paul says, Who will rescue me? from this body of death. And so a Romans 7 experience, it's fear-filled. That's kind of hard to say. We're fearful. It's death-dealing. And those who are enabled to pray, those who receive the Spirit, I believe we enter in, where we're supposed to enter in, into a new experiential reality. Now this isn't a reality that just happens to us, but we practice this reality. Rather than fear, there is peace. That's the theme in Romans 8. And rather than alienation, you know, it's all about alienation. In Romans 7, it's self-alienation. Rather than that, there is unity with God and other people. Now, of course, the problem is some people mistake Romans 7 as the experience of God as if that's the normal experience but to conceive this as an experience of God I think is to miss Paul's point oh no Romans 7 the only person that is involved there is you is I is me you can't get over the I and where God is presumed to be known you know that's really what he's talking about the law but he's really by the law he means the I There are several things that are there, but the idea is that this alienates, it prescribes, it punishes. And really God is not in the picture in Romans 7, even though people may think he is. And it's not simply that God is excluded or even that the law is felt as this oppressive force, but the force of the law excludes one part of the self from another part of the self. I do what I don't want to do. As if the body has a life of its own, a mind of its own. And this is the opposite of what I'm calling the engendering. Another way we can think of this is we receive the Spirit. Those who practice the presence of God, maybe we could talk about this. I, and I want to say this and then I'll correct it. I know you've all been worried about this all week when I said this last week. So I'm going to say it again, but then I'm going to say, that's not quite right. But we might think of this as a kind of feminine sort of receptivity. We see God's birthing, his engendering, his fructifying activity is realized, and the recipient of this is feminine. There's a feminine openness to this. Christians, we know metaphorically, You know, we become the bride of Christ. We become impregnated with the life from God. And in 8.23, we give birth to fruit. And the indwelling of the Spirit engenders life and peace. And is equated with the indwelling of the Son. In verse 9 to 11. And so the Spirit incorporates us into this familial Relationship, this family relationship with the Father and the Son. We have access to the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And the believer becomes womb-like in bearing fruit for God as each of the persons of the Trinity converge upon her with the Father searching the mind of the Spirit who has interpenetrated the mind of the believer and were conformed to Christ. And the believer groans in the pangs of childbirth. It's a feminine imagery. Now, I'm not sure we need to go as far as Gregory of Nyssa, who imagines, you know, prior to the fall in Genesis 1, he says that human beings were non-sexed. It was unisex. And it was angelic-like, and in redemption, they will no longer bear sexualized bodies. But everybody will become quasi-female in relation to God. And of course, he's thinking here of the imagery of becoming the bride of Christ. Bearing fruit. Of being subjects of this incorporating activity of God. I question whether it literally involves the sexual organs. But it does refer to this feminine receptivity. The receptivity, however... I think is over and against, you know, when we talk about Romans 7 and 8, it's over and against the impenetrability. You know, we talked about last week. Maybe there's a kind of masculine orientation in picturing God as law, or through the law. And this masculine sort of orientation, it's not subject to being conformed. It can't be shaped, it can't be reoriented. It can't be reconceived. And the possibility of being conformed to Christ, receiving the Spirit, you know, there's a lack of reception. And that stands over and against this kind of feminine reception. But of course, the primary issue is not really about gender. That's not really what we're talking about. But it's a different word, and it's engendering. The engendering qualities of God which refers to both male and female characteristics. We understand God's neither male nor female, but there is this engendering aspect. So it's not God's gender, but whether God begets, whether God brings about, whether he creates, whether he effectuates, generates, spawns, whether he primarily does this, or is he perceived as impeding, you know, think of the word quench, limiting, restricting, squelching. You know, some people, that's the way they view God, that he's primarily a lawgiver. He stifles, he punishes, he arrests. And so there is a gendered quality to both sets of actions. But the word is really being deployed there in a very different way. Gender in the first instance refers to producing, to propagating. And in the second instance, the words are metaphorically gendered, you know, masculine, as these are connected to qualities that we might associate, I think, wrongly with God the Father, God as lawgiver. And so the problem we think in terms of gender and in trying to speak of God. Without gender is problematic for us. Because gender is, you know, it contains that engendering quality of God. And so if we give up that or we think of God in one gender. We're trading a kind of life-giving understanding of God. For a death-dealing understanding. So if you think of God simply as father, as lawgiver he will be primarily perceived in negative terms of punishing of restricting but on the other hand if you think of god as primarily female and this is a problem in idolatrous religion you know in japan the primary deity is amaterasu is a goddess and that's also very common but the idea is that apart from the masculine God does not engender in others but unfolds or infolds so that in the first instance he might as male he might be perceived as like the aristotelian unmoved mover he's distant he can't be touched by us and in the second instance you know with god as female god is completely imminent like a pantheism a monism as the womb and consumer of all things. And so in each instance, we lose the engendering quality of God. And so the contrast between Romans 7 and 8, we could talk about it in gender. We're talking about it metaphorically, but I'm saying this is not entirely accurate. And so Romans 7, 7 to 25 is about sin and the law. And the implication is that God, when he's perceived in this way through the law, will take on this masculine, dividing, punishing, alienating, you know, maybe a cold, inaccessible kind of transcendent figure. And of course we know this isn't God. It's not God in reality, but it's God misperceived, through the deception of sin. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Sin deceived me in regard to who God is. And he's equated with the law. And so Romans 8 displaces this law of sin and death or this false understanding of God with the reality of God. You know, the law of sin and death is replaced with the law of life and the Spirit. And these feminine qualities of the Spirit are accentuated. In the exchange. That is this birthing, this birth pains, this engendering action. And then, only then is father, Abba. You know, Abba is the idea of a, a closeness to the father figure. And where we enter into this Abba relation with God through the Spirit, our life takes on this shape. That we see in Thessalonians of gratitude, this thanksgiving, and it's thematic. And this is my conclusion is that thanksgiving is thematic in Scripture and should be characteristic of those who recognize the reality of God's goodness. First Chronicles 1634. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalms 104. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Psalms 107 goes through a series. You know, people are caught up in these various disasters. And yet he caused the storm to be stilled, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people. And praise him at the seat of the elders. Jeremiah 33:11. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good. And I think the two always go together. We acknowledge the goodness of God. We acknowledge the loving kindness of God. And that gives rise to the thanks. His love endures forever. Ephesians, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These are out of place, but let there be thanksgiving. And so thanks, thanksgiving is to be characteristic of the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 9-11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce, this is the end product Thanksgiving to God. Colossians 4 2, very similar to Thessalonians and Romans. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Another verse in Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace and thanks often go together. And be thankful. 1 Timothy 4 4 5, for everything. Created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with gratitude. I think he's talking about our discussion today. I think he's talking about ordinary things like food. I think he's talking about creation. It is all sanctified by means of the word of God. And prayer. And then the very last book in the Bible. Revelation. We give thanks to you Lord. Who is good and who was. For you have taken your great power. And begun to reign. Revelation 7.12 Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. And thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. And so I'll conclude where I began. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, Or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.